Welcome to the Piano Whisperer Podcast. She took me aside and she said, why are you here? Me being young, going like, well, because the other guy couldn't do it and I'm here, you know, but that's not really what she meant. She, it's like, no, like you as this person, why are you here? Like, what's your purpose of being in this room and with all these people? And what is, what is your music actually doing to connect everyone and to say something on a deeper level? And that kind of struck a chord from that moment on. I've used performance really only as a vehicle to get into the room. Hello, everybody, and thank you very much for joining us for Piano Whisperer. We have a really exciting episode for you today. I also want to thank Classic Pianos for sponsoring this. Today, we have with us Michael Kashammer. British Columbia-based pianist, singer-songwriter, producer Michael Kashammer recently released his 12th album to the delight of loyal fans around the globe. His recording career spans more than 22 years, including his latest LP titled Something New. Commenting on his new album, one reviewer wrote, Kashammer has unapologetically blurred the musical lines here between boogie-woogie, traditional jazz, blues, straight-ahead jazz, zydeco, and more. The album was nominated for a Juno Award for Vocal Jazz Album of the Year, his eighth such nomination. This engaging pianist vocalist is the recipient of multiple awards and nominations, most recently winning as Western Canadian Music Association Best Jazz Artist 2017. His earlier awards include Male Artist of the Year and Performer of the Year 2001, all WCMA awards, along with 2002 Musician of the Year. In addition to the WCMA and Juno Awards, Michael has received nominations from CBC, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, for Best Live Show in 2014. And in 2017, he received Canadian Songwriting Honorable Mention for two songs, Late Night Train and Sweet Grace. Michael Kashammer, thank you so much for being here. It's a privilege to have you. Hi, Ben. How are you? Well, listening to you talk like that makes me feel like I've done something with my life. <laughs> <laughs> See? Yeah, yeah, Thanks for that absolutely. <laughs> yeah. You bet. My pleasure. So when we start these podcasts out, I often like to get a little background and context. So if you could tell us about your early life and exposure to music, I think it's really interesting. You grew up in Germany. Your dad played ragtime. He, from what I understand, showed you your first 12-bar blues exposure, and you had a teacher that you liked a lot, and after 13, you never took formal lessons. So I wanted to ask about all that and then also ask how you continued to learn on your own. Yeah, for sure. Well, to go back to when I was very little, there was always music around the house. Of course, my dad played some ragtime. He played a few, I guess, songs from the 20s and 30s. He didn't really play classical music, but he loved jazz. He loved Dixieland jazz and traditional New Orleans jazz. It wasn't just his piano playing. It was also the fact that he would play records all the time. Like music was just a big part. He just loved music. Even now, when I hear him put on a record, he starts dancing around or clapping his hands and <laughs> he just loves music, you know? Nice. And, and that was the infectious part about it when I was a kid. Yeah, I'll bet. You know, and the fact that it's piano is really just because he played piano. I think if he would have played a different instrument, I would have probably 
been a trumpet player or, or drummer or I don't know, but it was piano. There was a piano in the house. He loved Basie and Ellington and Jelly Roll Morton and Scott Joplin. And so that's why I play piano. I got it. Now tell me about this teacher. So he recognized that you had sincere interest and he hooked you up with a teacher that you studied with till you were 13. And in an interview with Bill King, you said that you felt lucky to have her. So can you tell us about her a little bit and then how you proceeded with your learning journey? At the time, I didn't realize I was lucky to have her because it was just this piano teacher and it was a place I had to go to because I loved piano. It was okay to go to, but in hindsight, knowing because my brother had a piano teacher who made him stop playing piano because he just hated going to the lessons. There was no connection. It was, uh, it was very strict, you know, as a seven year old, you don't really want to do that. And in hindsight, I'm, I'm realizing how lucky I was to have this lady for the first few years I played. And, she uh, started her lessons off with a German book, I guess. It's a, it's a series of four books called Schaum, playing the piano. And you basically start with playing middle C with your left thumb and your right thumb, and you start your coordination. And she made it fun. She made the whole process of sitting at the piano fun for me. And it was a half-hour lesson, once a week. So it wasn't too much as a seven-year-old. The fact that I have technique and people point out my technique i've never thought about technique and i think it was just the fact that at that age i have been taught the right thing yeah yeah so how did you continue on your journey obviously continued to develop at light speed after she moved away what was your process like as a kid as a teen well there was i kind of had a double piano life going i had my lessons which were classical music and then at my home life with my dad and you know he would show me like you said the the 12 bar blues he would show me what ragtime and stride piano is how you go back and forth between bass notes and chords and i just played a lot of piano i, I think you can have talent or you can have whatever but if you don't spend time with that instrument it doesn't matter you're not going to become a good player and my parents tell me now I guess I remember this too, but I used to play pianos in the mornings before I had to go to school because I just couldn't wait. As soon as I got up, I would sit down at the piano. For me, it was just, we didn't watch a lot of TV in our family. There was no internet at the time. There was So there was no distractions anyway. The piano was in the living room. So my parents were in the kitchen in the mornings and I would just have my own little area of doing things. And yeah, so I... I basically just, it was like being in a playground and, and just experiencing stuff for myself. So I didn't just play classical music. I also composed and I was creative, you know, I created my own stuff. Yeah, that's cool. And then you moved as a late teen to BC. And, and again, in that Bill King interview, you mentioned that moving to Canada perhaps was the best move of your life that maybe you wouldn't have been able to do what you do today if it weren't for that. Do you feel that way? I do, yeah, because surroundings. I grew up in a little town in the Black Forest in Germany where no one else is performing music to make a living. So as a kid, you don't see it. It's not something you do unless you become a teacher. That's not what I wanted to do. I wanted to just play. And before I moved to Canada, I realized just from the reaction in my family, in school, that people like what I do. And if you get enough of that and you get accustomed to that, it kind of nurtures you into realizing 
people react to what you can do on the instrument and you go further and you kind of push that envelope a little bit. And so by the time I came to Canada, I thought, you know, I already started playing a few shows in Germany and little jazz clubs. And then I came to Canada and I thought, I'll just go to all these bars and I drop off my little tape, cassette tape that I made. And then I see if I can get a gig. The old demo tape. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I did. I drove around everywhere and then one person called me back. But hey, that's all it takes. That's a great story. Now, I spent Sunday listening to your earlier recordings, uh-huh. and I heard what I thought was sounds of the old Ray Brown trios with especially Gene Harris, but also Oscar Peterson and Benny Green. And then I, I read another article in The Wave that said, your style owes as much to Billy Joel and Paul McCartney as it does to Professor Longhair and Albert Ammons. And I totally hear a love of, of Professor Longhair and Ammons, but I don't personally hear Billy Joel so much or McCartney. Am I right? And is Gene Harris, like I heard him all throughout those and the Ray Brown trios in general, that that sound, was that influential at all to you? And speak to me about that if you would. Absolutely. Yeah. First of all, I've never listened to Billy Joel. I mean, now as (laughs) as an adult, I do because I love the songwriting, but I never have considered from the piano standpoint where I'm at, I never looked at him as serious piano player but from a songwriting and performer and singer he's incredible people write things in articles they might hear something that's not there the great thing about recordings is it's a snapshot of the stuff you're interested in or of the stuff that influences you at the time i definitely had my share of gene harris Phineas Newborn, the Ray Brown trio with whoever was playing piano. <laughs> yeah. Obviously the Oscar trio. If you've heard some older stuff, that probably is the chances that I probably listened to that kind of stuff around that time. Yeah, for sure. And then it becomes part of your playing and now it's just in there. Yeah, it's like a part of the soup, right? When I was preparing for this, Michael, there were so many things I wanted to bring up and I I won't have time to bring up the whole recipes and the food thing, but I'll tell you what, you and I could do a few of these and not exhaust everything I want to ask you. You cook sometime together. (laughs) I think I'd scare you. No, I'm not not the most talented. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, I'm not the best. My wife is amazing and she likes to cook and I really don't mind cleaning. So that that works out well. And no, I definitely love to eat though. Are you kidding? (laughs) Yeah. yeah. So anyway, you had a, a lot of early success. And in the Globe and Mail article I read from 2011, a while back, you mentioned you were close to giving up on performing altogether at one point. If you would be comfortable talking about that, I'd be grateful. And if you could talk about your trip to New Orleans and how important that was when you took a break, that would be wonderful too. Well, yeah, I had a time where I have to say it, uh, I was on the road playing solo shows and a few duet shows with different artists. And at that point in my life, what I performed on stage and um, the places I went to didn't give me anything in return. I don't know if that makes sense, but it's not piano playing I ever wanted to stop. I would have always play piano as much as I can in the day. It was the performing part that didn't give me anything. And I, and I thought, well, why am I even traveling all this way to, you know, like, why am I here? So I started to write a little more and write my own music and my own lyrics a little more. And that's what brought me back into, I guess, wanting to say something on stage or having something valid to say on stage rather than just, hey, I can play piano. 
and going to New Orleans and being around certain New Orleans musicians definitely made a difference too for me to realize those things. Like the fact that I'm playing piano should just be a vehicle to get me in the room with people. But then what you're doing with it or what you're trying to convey and, and what kind of message you're trying to connect with is what it's actually about. So the fact that the piano playing is very good, that should all be a given. So that's the point I got to. And luckily I kept going because now I love it more than ever. And you attribute some of this to a woman named Marva Wright. Can you talk about her a little bit? Yeah. A friend of mine was playing piano with her and he had to go on the road and I subbed in and I was just thrown into this band in New Orleans for a gig. The piano players are expected to perform during the intermission. This is on Bourbon Street. And so you're, as a piano player, you're basically sitting there for five hours at the piano playing which is fine because you get an extra hundred bucks for your intermission performance or something. And But afterwards, she took me aside and she said, why are you here? Me being young, going like, well, because the other guy couldn't do it and I'm here, you know, but that's not really <laughs> what she meant. She, it's like, no, like you as this person, why are you here? Like, what's your purpose of being in this room and with all these people? And what is what is your music actually doing to connect everyone and to say something on a deeper level. And that kind of struck a chord. From that moment on, I've used performance really only as a vehicle to get into the room. That's beautiful. You know, people like that have such a profound impact on us. So now, a lot of great things have happened to you in recent years. Last year, you released your 12th album entitled Something New. And on your website, you mentioned that the choice of album title reflects a new aesthetic approach to your music. Can you talk about that? I've produced records in the past, also my own records. This one was a little different because it took its own course while I was recording it. So we went to New Orleans as a trio, recorded with Johnny Vidakovich, who's a great drummer from New Orleans, who used to play with Professor Long here and James Booker, and a bass player named David Pilch. And I started the recording as a trio, but as I was recording it, from a producing standpoint, I started to realize well, wait a minute, maybe someone else might sound better singing this song than me. Whereas as an artist, you might go, well, wait, what, what am I no good? But if you're a producer, you go, no, no, let's just serve the music in the song. So I started to invite people. I had Cyril Neville come on and Curtis Salgado, and I would ask them to sing some of my songs. And uh, I started producing other people on the record just as much as I was being the artist. And that was a whole new perspective for recording. And that's why I called it something new, because for me, it was something new. Yeah. Did you have fun doing that? Was that fun? It was amazing. Yeah, I loved it. Almost to the point where now I would love to do records where I'm just producing, because <laughs> it's great to tell people what to do. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, when you're really just looking at things objectively, like you said, and saying, hey, what's going to serve the music here? There are a lot of different ways that you can treat it. So that's, that's really amazing for you to be able to get outside yourself. I remember reading a thing about Karyan where he said, I could never find enough enjoyment in just playing piano and then once i stood in front of a symphony orchestra and i could shape the music with all these instruments it made sense and that's kind of when you're an artist and you're playing it's great but if you're in the control room and you can shape the music and you can invite whoever you want you can just call them up and go i think you would sound great on this and you record them and then you can 
I mean, in today's age with post-production, you can play around with it. It's really fun. And, and it gives you a lot of tools to, to make music with rather than just the piano. Now, you have toured all over the world and you've been to a lot of distant countries many times. You've toured China eight times and you've said that you love the country. And I'd love to hear your thoughts about China. I'd also love to hear your story behind Forbidden Love, where you mentioned in the Great Dark Wonder interview that Forbidden Love was inspired by a visit to a North Korean restaurant while you were in China. And so I think that would be interesting to hear. I went to China the first time during the Olympics in Beijing. And at that time, I was just playing at a, at a government of Canada location, I guess, Canada House, they called it. But it was the first time I've been, I, was, I, I went to a place that was very different from what I was used to, you know, North America, Europe, even travel to the Middle East. But this was just a different world. And I loved it. And I loved the people there just because it was something new for me to discover. And so when I came back to Canada, I asked my agent here if they can find me a promoter in China. And then I um, started making friends with this promoter and we're friends ever since. And he's a great guy and they have a great company. And so they've brought me over every year. We just came back a month ago and we're going again next fall. And it's turned into playing 20, 25 cities all across the country to the point where we're maybe in a city in Mongolia where they haven't had not just jazz, but any live performance ever. <laughs> wow. How cool is that? Well, it's a great experience because China is a very advanced and modern country. So within a year, while we're not there, they might build a thousand theaters in the country in different cities because they're promoting the arts and it's and they're really state-of-the-art theaters. But there haven't been many performances or there was just some dance before or some local production. So coming there and you're in these beautiful theaters and you look out and it's taught me something to read the faces of an audience who's never heard jazz before, because it makes you realize that, well, you kind of take for granted that you can do whatever, but maybe some people don't quite understand. They've never heard that sound before and they kind of go, what is this? And then it comes down to how you relate it rather than what you're playing. You know, if you go play a jazz club here in North America, it's everyone's heard jazz before, even if it's just in Starbucks or something. Think about the fact that you're like the first ambassador. Yeah, I, I, so I wrote a whole journal book about it, which I want to release at some point about a trip going over there and having that experience. Wow. And Forbidden Love, how does that tie in? We, uh, we went to a, a North Korean restaurant, one of the places, and I mean, I, d I didn't know too much about the history between the two countries. And I was basically just, since I, I was sitting there, and this was on a solo tour, and everyone else around me was speaking Chinese, and my translator wasn't really translating. He was more into a conversation <laughs> with someone else. I was just there. And I started creating these stories, and I thought about if I would come in here as a guy and I would have a, I want to take someone out, but you're from another country, depending on how you're raised, it's not as easy as just when you're growing up in the same society. So I came up with this scenario and I just started to write the song basically in my head and then wrote it out when I got back to the hotel and that's what it became. 
Yeah. And it's funny because you did relocate from Canada to BC, right? And that that's an adjustment, but it really is different when you go to a place that is completely different. Yeah, and, and it could be culturally too. I mean, there's also culturally, there's stories all over the world where people can be together because of or religion or whatever. So it's it's an interesting song topic, I guess, you know, or, or topic for any writing. In the piano industry, I have to say we're entirely grateful to the Chinese population because I, I say this <laughs> with all seriousness, although I'm laughing. If it were for the Chinese people, I don't think there would be a piano industry, honestly. They're <laughs> the great promoters of piano education. <laughs> and yeah, where would we be? When I go over there, it's at least a third of my audience is kids, and they're all piano kids. And then sometimes I do a master class or something before the show, and it's great to see them. There's some really young kids playing amazing, older kids or older people trying to get into it. And, and it's piano is a real part of the culture there as well. So it's, it's, I think that's probably a reason why a career over there has worked for me. Yeah, yeah. And they, they're national heroes. They're pianists among them. You know, that's so unusual. But Long Long, for example, who opened the Chinese Olympics, right? He's a hero. Yeah. I mean, he's a superstar over there. He's a superstar. Yeah, he is. Now, I was bummed that I missed this, but according to the Times Colonist, I read an article that said you did a one-hour PBS special and it aired in November, which means we missed it. We didn't miss it because we pushed it to March. Oh, nice. Yeah. Good. I was like so bummed. I thought, oh my gosh, this is airing in December. <laughs> All right. So so basically they followed you to the Charlie White Theater in Sydney, BC. Yeah. What was it, a live show? Was there lots of dialogue? What was the scenario there? Yeah, we did a couple of days of interviews and B-roll and stuff like that. But we basically taped two live shows here in Vancouver Island with the band and turned it into a one-hour concert special. And, and it'll be on... PBS and American Public Television in March as part of their fun drive. And then it'll, later on, it'll come out as a DVD as well. And so, yeah, I'm excited. It was, it was a lot of fun to do. Is there anything that I haven't said that you'd like to bring up? Is there anything, Michael Hammer that I have missed that you would like people to know? Well... Not really, except that I love to play the piano. <laughs> <laughs> and that comes through when you're performing. Yeah. And how can people find out more about you? I think the easiest way and, and where I'm most active is uh, obviously websites, ksama.com or my Facebook page. That's kind of where I keep most active. I think there's also lots of touring coming up around the PBS special in 2020 in the U.S., you know, come and see a show because it's always different to see something live and to be part of that energy in the room. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of energy coming out of you. And I'll never forget actually performing one time with you. I had been like sweating this one performance for like three months. Right. And I, <laughs> I said to you, what are you going to play? You said, I'm not sure yet. I'm like, <laughs> oh man, what is that like? <laughs> but <laughs> you knocked it out of the park. If you think about it too much, it's not good. <laughs> <laughs> yep but it takes a lot of experience to get there yeah. anyway well thank you so much this has been a blast and i feel like we could do this again and cover entirely different ground there's just a wealth to talk about with you because you're not just a musician and a piano player you are a guy who seeks the best out of life and you want to live life fully and that includes people and relationships. And that's actually quite unusual. A lot of times people are 
are more singularly focused. And I just so appreciate that about you. Many, many thanks. Thank you, Ben. And you know what? We can do this again anytime. And if you want to pick another topic, if you just want to talk about the classics or about piano playing, I'm totally game. Let's count on it. Let's count on it. Thanks again to Classic Pianos for sponsoring this, making these possible. I really appreciate that. And if you want to find out more about Piano Whisperer, please join us on www.pianowhisperer.org. That's pianowhisperer.org. Also, if your preferences to listen on different platforms, we're available on Spotify and Stitcher and Podbean and all the major platforms. So thank you so much. It's really a kick for me to do these. I really appreciate everyone taking the time to listen. I'm really grateful for everybody. So thanks very much. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode. And thanks again to our sponsor, Classic Pianos, who makes these ongoing podcasts possible. To learn more about Piano Whisperer and to hear earlier broadcasts, please visit pianowhisperer.org. We would be grateful if you would take a minute to rate and review us on whatever platform you use, Spotify, Apple Music, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Podbeam, and TuneIn. See you next time.